everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christian Heim podcast, where we're living for preventative mental health, love, and compassion. So great to have you here again. I'm Caroline Heim, and here's Dr. Christian Heim. And hello again. And today we're going to continue our series reading Dr. Heim's book, Negotiating Diversity with Insights from Science and Clinical Psychiatry. I'm very excited, as in today's episode, we're going to look at cultural neuroscience. We're looking at some amazing breakthroughs in the study of the brain that show us how we not only have a biological and genetic inheritance, but a cultural one too. Then we go on to look at the mere exposure effect. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe, spread the word and recommend them to others. Lots to chat about today, so I'm going to be interrupting the reading and asking Dr. Hines some questions. Chapter 3. Are we wired to get along? The science of human relationships. If civilization is to survive, we must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together in the same world at peace. President Franklin D. Roosevelt. The short answer to the question, are we wired to get along, is a resounding yes, we can choose to get along. We have brain areas and networks dedicated to the task of getting along with other people, feeling empathy towards others, the anterior cingulate cortex, activating compassion, the medial prefrontal cortex, monitoring how we come across to others, the insular cortex, thinking about how we feel about people, frontal lobe and limbic system, and sharing our very selves with other people through eye contact and social brain. The whole brain is involved. It's not just this area does that and that area does that. The whole brain works together all the time, just as we as people strive to find ways to work together as people all the time. This chapter presents the scientific evidence to help us understand and negotiate cultural diversity. Understanding the science will make it easy to accept that we are all indeed different and diverse. It's okay to be diverse. We evolved to be diverse. Recent evidence from brain imaging confirms ideas of Hall, Hofstede and Trompenard. What applies to culture can apply to all of diversity. Over decades, the sciences of human relationships, behavioural psychology, sociology, anthropology and political science strive to understand ourselves and our interactions to move to more peaceful coexistence. Given time, it is natural to accept each other. This is shown in the mere exposure effect, altruism, and the trust in the brain, and how we transmit our feelings underneath through words and glances. We also consider how the brain uses belief. First, however, we'll discuss cultural difference in the brain. Welcome to the world of cultural neuroscience. Cultural neuroscience. Culture, the brain, and behavior are profoundly connected. The relatively young field of cultural neuroscience has already articulated some remarkable insights. And don't worry, we're going to go through each of these in more detail. We each have a cultural inheritance, as strong as and as important as our biological and genetic inheritance. Cultural inheritance directly affects genetics. It also affects the sizes of various brain areas and the function of the immune system. Cultural inheritance particularly affects how we use our eyes. Westerners, for example, tend to focus on a central object in a picture, whereas non-Westerners take in more of the background context. This has massive implications for the different ways we perceive our relationship with each other and the things of this world. Culture affects your brain's motivational system. 
Migrating to a new country changes key brain activities. Your culture directly affects the way you think. Understanding culture in the brain would result in better health care and could also lead to healthier expressions of kindness, compassion, trust and altruism. I find this so fascinating. It's comforting in a way to think that the world around us can also shape who we are. Uh, comforting. Well, that's a scientific basis that we actually um, uh, behave according to our environment. The environment throws up problems for us and uh, we find a way to solve this and to move forward in life. So it's a relationship that we have with our environment, the world. Okay, great. So we're going to actually elaborate on some of these insights now. Culture affects genes. Genes belong to the body and culture belongs to the mind, right? Well, <laughs> things are a little more complex than that. Evidence shows that our genetic and cultural inheritance influence each other. Having fair skin and living in a sun-drenched country, such as Australia, leads to increased sunscreen use and sun-protective clothing becoming part of the culture. How much cow's milk we drink is a cultural choice that affects our body height and development and the genetics of lactose intolerance. Focus on the individual versus the collective is a cultural dimension which affects the expression of a gene predisposing us to depression. Genes affect culture and culture affects genes. Recall Dawkins' idea that biological inheritance is through genes, whereas cultural inheritance is through memes. Genes are proteins, memes are ideas and behaviours which can be imitated. But memes may relate to Jung's archetypes and the collective unconscious tying together the individual and the collective as a basis of one of Trompenard's cultural dimensions. Okay, so you're not going to just leave it at that, are you? Okay, this has a profound effect on who we are. Are we just at the surface of this understanding or is there some way to unpack it more for the individual? Well, I suppose this is why I've got to leave it where it is because I'm determined at the moment to present the science. And already talking about memes and archetypes is going beyond the science. Yeah. Uh, and so because of that, I just wanted to put a bit of a teaser there that uh, we are thinking beyond the science, but we don't have evidence for it as yet. However, culture is more than just science-bound. It gets us into the idea of the mind and our relationships with each other. So our whole existence is a lot more, I think, than science actually appreciates. True. Okay. Eyes focus on center versus background. Several studies show that Westerners focus on a central object in a picture, whereas non-Westerners focus more on background context. This has been localised in the brain and strongly suggests that the brain's way of processing all information is culturally informed. How we use our eyes affects what our brain decides is important in a mass of incoming information. This affects our fundamental relationship to objects in the world. According to science, people of different cultures literally see the world differently. This affects our sense of self, the boundaries of where me ends and where not me, other people in the environment, begins. So, culture informs not only how we use our eyes, but our relationships to each other, how we see where I end and you begin, our personal boundaries and our space in the world. This supports the individual versus group distinction made by Hofstede and Trompenard. So does this consequently affect affection and touch too? It actually affects everything because we make this basic assumption that the person next to us sees the world the same way that we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, cultural neuroscience is bringing that very assumption uh, into question. So all of a sudden, we can look at each other and go, you know what, perhaps you don't see the world the way that I do. Okay, So the way that 
I touch you may be perceived differently from you than is intended by me. And, and a whole lot of other things. This whole assumption that we are all the same sort of being going through a, a world that we understand. It's all starting to break down. And the exciting thing about that is if we can accept that, then we can accept each other as diverse people. Motivation. Science assumed that we are all self-motivated beings. But brain imaging is uncovering important cultural differences in this. Research shows that Westerners are more self-motivated than Chinese people, who are more motivated to act in the interests of close relatives. Chinese people use their medial prefrontal cortex to represent both themselves and their close relatives, like their mother, whereas Westerners use this area exclusively to represent the self. So a Western brain sees itself as more separate from a mother than does a Chinese brain. That's a profound difference, suggesting huge differences in all our interpersonal relationships. This further supports Hofstede and Trompenard. Certainly does. And will probably have a huge impact on parenting, actually, especially as cultures begin to merge in different countries in this global village. You just can't have a one-size-fits-all kind of parenting then. Well, this in particular sort of shows one of those things that, quite frankly, we knew beforehand, that different cultures have different attitudes to the people that are close, like families. And some people just see themselves as part of a family more than other people do. So this, for me, is one of those scientific discoveries that, oh, we're right in what we knew, mm -hmm. okay? And it does. It has uh, profound differences uh, in how we even parent, okay? Uh, but I don't expect people will be changing their parenting because of the science. But I suppose that people will feel more comfortable being themselves in the way that they parent. Yeah, and it's also like the books that are put out, they're, they're not generic. They're not just for everyone. That's what I'm, I'm thinking about, you know. Yeah, that's right. Like parenting books. And that's right. Like and that. as this world gets larger, in a sense, and our knowledge broadens, uh, we get not just a parenting book, but a parenting book for this kind of person or this kind of person. So it gets a lot more specific. So we get much more into the nitty gritty of the differences that we have. And the assumption behind that is we're different. <laughs> the effect of migration. Science used to believe that in migration, people keep the same brain and simply begin to negotiate a new environment. We now know that brain changes with migration and that these changes are choice dependent. After moving to a new country, migrants experience a period of adjustment. During this time, they may choose to become more like the people of the new culture or choose to stay more in the old culture. The choice shows up in brain imaging scans as different network changes. A person's choice in this changes their brain networks. This too provides evidence of the differences articulated by Hall, Hofstede and Trompenard. It also emphasises how choice shapes the brain. Oh, this is so true. I saw this happening in the US when I lived there, actually. First-generation Korean friends of mine were so intrinsically American in their thoughts and outlooks. And I suppose you could say they chose to be more American. Uh, now, um, mind you, their parents could have chosen to stay more Korean. And this all shows up in the brain. And there, there are two things that excite me about this. One, that we're different, okay? But secondly, that it's choice dependent. And uh, sometimes when we think about science, we think about science saying this is the way it is and so this is the way it is for everybody. But the latest science is showing that not only are they vast differences, but we actually have choice in this, okay? And if you break culture down, it comes right down to the individual level that we all have, in a sense, a culture of our own and we get to choose some of that. 
take-home message, culture and choice influence brain anatomy, function and thinking. Cultural differences become anatomically inscribed. They can be observed and measured. This helps us understand and accept cultural differences as normal, just as skin colour differences are normal. Scientifically, they're even desirable, as they are adaptations to help us survive. Skin colour differences are due to environment. Cultural brain differences are also due to environment. Cultural differences can now be seen as desirable variety to help us survive rather than as a threat or hostility. Can we extrapolate this to all diversity? Take home message. Cultural differences, like skin colour, are adaptive and desirable. Perhaps this is true of all diversity. Cultural neuroscience is a relatively new field. Group diversity is likely to be just as real, but research in this area is new. Initial investigations into the brains of people of diverse gender expression and sexual expression suggest that anatomical differences can be demonstrated. If we can understand and accept these anatomical differences in the brain, we can more easily embrace the idea that difference and diversity is just difference and diversity. To find out how our brains naturally accept difference over time, we turn to the mere exposure effect. And now here we're moving from a uh, cultural neuroscience, which is very anatomically based, to something that's very psychologically based. So this has more to do with how we behave, the okay. mere exposure effect. The mere exposure effect. I'd like to encourage you to take note of this section. It holds the key to getting along in society and, dare I say it, could spell out the end of the culture wars if we choose it. The mere exposure effect is a robust scientific finding that explains how exposure leads to understanding and acceptance of difference in other people. It is a hopeful finding that merits discussion. The mere exposure effect is a psychological phenomenon we all experience. That, the brain likes familiarity. The more you see something, the more you tend to like it. The more you hear it, the more you tend to like it. And the more time you spend with someone, the more you tend to like them. Three examples, seeing, hearing and trusting someone, will illustrate the effect. Just as the findings of Hall, Hofstede and Trompenar have been employed in business for decades to make money without being used to help us get on with people, so too has the mere exposure effect been used in business for decades to make money without being employed to help us get on better as people. Our three examples come from the world of advertising. C. Advertisers know that the more you see a logo, name and brand, the more you will identify positively with it and the more you will buy. The challenge for marketers is to find a distinctive logo, name and brand and to get it out there for you to like. I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney at a time when several fast food chains were just beginning to open. I'm not generally fond of fast food and becoming a doctor only confirmed my suspicions of fast food cuisine. One brand, however, has become very familiar to me over the years. It features chicken meals, red lettering and a bearded old man with a smile. When I was very young, it opened its first Australian outlet just a suburb away from where I lived. It fast became a convenient favourite for my grandparents, my parents and, consequently, me. It remains about the only fast food store I will enter. Why? Years of familiarity. Eating chicken and being around happy people and happy family while seeing a red and white logo. This is a mere exposure effect. I grew to like something very much through repeated exposure. Here. Advertisers know that the more you hear a song, the more you like it. The challenge for marketers with new songs is getting airplay on radio or traction through the internet. We remember hit songs from our teenage years as we are familiar with them and 
and they touched us at a time of personal development in exploring sex, love, meaning, purpose, and our place in society. The power of music familiarity, however, extends beyond this. As a child learning the piano, I wasn't fond of the music of Bach. Teachers told me that his music will grow on you, much to my chagrin. But they were right. Now I can barely go a day without playing some Bach. It is familiar to me as the Beatles. Why? Years of familiarity. This is a mere exposure effect. Years of exposure to Bach led me to like his music. Trusting familiar people. Advertisers know that if they can get a celebrity to endorse their product, it will sell well. Celebrities have ready-made familiarity. The challenge is to find a familiar face so that brains can form an association between the product and the familiar celebrity. This instills trust and the effect is very powerful. If you can't afford a celebrity, then depicting a trusted doctor, a trusted dentist or a trusted mother figure has the same effect. Why does it work? Years of trusted familiarity. This is a mere exposure effect, associating a product with a trusted figure. Hmm, but it can also have the opposite effect with celebrities. I'm just thinking of some actors that I interviewed in New York that worked opposite them, um, celebrities on stage, and the audience adored the celebrities, their trust and the familiarity, um, but the other factors felt a wall of hostility coming towards them. Yes, but your example only reinforces the mere exposure effect. It does. It just shows that the familiarity with the celebrity was there. In fact, it was so strong that it took focus away from the other actors. Mm, yeah. Advertising budgets tend to be big. Really, really big. Why put so much money into using these principles? Because they work. Science and real work experience provide the evidence. The paragraphs above articulated only a few manifestations of the mere exposure effect. The effect is so strong that we have to be careful what children are exposed to. Merely exposing them to cigarette ads, for example, increases their positive feelings towards smoking. Governments have to legislate against smoking, alcohol and fast food ads or explicit images during children prime time viewing. Take home message. The mere exposure effect, liking what's familiar, is very, very strong. As a psychiatrist, I know that our brains are constantly looking for familiarity and that the mere exposure effect is very strong in many ways. Our adult brains will try to reproduce what our childhood brains were exposed to. If a child grows up with peace, it will aim for peace as an adult. If a child grows up with hostility, it will have a tendency to produce this in adulthood. If it grew up in a family of rules, it will tend to impose the same rules as a parent. If you grew up near the beach, you want to spend time there as an adult. Whatever your childhood environment and experiences, positive, negative or neutral, it's familiar to you and you'll be drawn to it as an adult. It becomes your living template. This too is a mere exposure effect. It's what you call a childhood template, isn't it? And these are very hard to break, aren't they? Yeah, I call them childhood templates because it gives a way of thinking why our behaviour is so difficult to change. Because of the mere exposure effect, because of familiarity, because our brains like what is familiar and does what is familiar, even when we try to change it, we have a hard time doing it. But it can be done. Studies show that the mere exposure effect, becoming familiar with people, significantly decreases stigma towards HIV-positive people and decreases prejudice. This principle has been replicated many, many times in diverse psychological experiments. It is a robust finding. 
Here, to help us know how to negotiate diversity, I'll concentrate on one particular study published in 1968 by Robert Zadonk. Zadonk's experiment was carried out at Oregon State University. It involved an unknown person turning up to class wearing a large black bag covering their whole body. Only feet were visible. The black bag person sat on a table at the back of the class. Professor Charles Goetzinger observed students changing attitudes to the person in the black bag. At first, students were hostile towards the person in the black bag. Then they became curious, and finally, they became accepting and even proud to have the black bag person in their class. Here's the pattern. Exposure to initial hostility, to growing curiosity, to final acceptance. This is a robust, predictable pattern of the mere exposure effect. It generally happens to all of us. The profound implication of this is, if we give ourselves the time, we would all move through this pattern and grow to like almost any person to whom we're exposed. Many people have experienced this and know it to be true. If you know someone who lives life from a wheelchair, you're more accepting of all people with wheelchairs. You see life from their point of view. If you personally know someone living with schizophrenia, you're more accepting of all people living with schizophrenia. You see life from their point of view and have a heart for their suffering. If you personally knew more people of different faiths, ethnicities, sexual and gender expression, you would, with time, be more accepting of them. You would see life from their point of view. Those of us who have such people close to us in our lives already know this is the case. We like them. They're people just like us. Scientifically, this is a hopeful finding, but there must be adequate exposure to move towards curiosity and acceptance, otherwise initial hostility remains. At first, I was mildly hostile towards the red and white fast food outlet. With time, I grew to like it. At first, I was mildly hostile towards the music of Bach. Over the years, I became curious. Now, I love it. If I didn't decide to stick with it early on, I'd not have grown to like it. Most people find their first sip of beer quite disgusting, but they become curious about beer and want acceptance from others who like it. Many become regular beer drinkers, but had they chosen to give up after that first sip, that would not have happened. Many people make a friend of someone they would initially have disliked, but had they not decided to get to know them, hostility would have remained. It's just like, kind of like a not judging a book by its cover. Covers are such superficial things, aren't they? Uh, yeah, but... It's even more than that. It's not. You don't even have to think of judging the cover. You just have to look at the cover. Yeah, and you so just look at you it. And so you expose mm. yourself to the book. If you look at a cover, you'll just naturally go and start opening it because yeah. you're curious about it. Now, if you end up reading the whole book, is personal choice. But this is such a wonderful finding because it's it's positive. It means that we can actually grow to like each other after the initial hostility. So you're actually not saying, okay, I'm going to have an opinion about this person. It's just saying... Look at it. Expose yourself to this person or this whatever. Yeah. Well, in a sense, this is the problem with um, being so subjected to news items and opinions, okay, because uh, social media almost tells us, have an opinion on this. And so we formulate an opinion before we've been exposed to something. Whereas if it just happened out in society and you were exposed to certain people, through the mere exposure effect, you just grow curious about them and grow to accept them. The pattern of the mere exposure effect, exposure and initial hostility through curiosity to final acceptance, is at work in many large cities' attitudes towards immigrants. Locals are usually initially suspicious and even hostile towards migrants. 
They then become curious about their food and customs. Ultimately, they accept them and even proudly celebrate food festivals and restaurants as part of the city landscape. This happens naturally. New York, London, Paris, Sydney, Melbourne, Rome, Vancouver, San Francisco and many, many, many more are proud to celebrate their Chinatown, Little Italy, Latin Quarter, Indian precinct, Greek and Indigenous population and more. But it takes time to move from the unfamiliar to familiar after initial hostility. Take-home message. With exposure, we naturally move from initial hostility through curiosity to acceptance. For the mere exposure effect to work, it helps to be physically close and share common ground, like living in the same city. In one study, white first-year college students became friendly towards their Afro-American roommates because they were close, roommates, and shared things in common, lectures and subjects. This develops kinship. Acceptance is not automatic, and sometimes boredom can limit curiosity. Having said that, however, the effect can be the catalyst to more positive change in our society. The main obstacle to the working of the mere exposure effect in our society is, I believe, prolonged initial hostility by media. In order to drive marketing outcomes and sales, social issues are packaged to shock and highlight conflict rather than highlight areas of agreement. There's so much manipulation going on there, isn't it? So does it have the same effect, do you think, if we're aware of the marketing manipulation? Yeah, that's that's actually a very good question. And the bottom line is we don't know, all right? Obviously, more awareness is going to lead to better outcomes. But at the bottom of a free market enterprise society is this ability to advertise. And it's it's just that we've taken it to some extent so that we've got negative consequences from it. And social media, unfortunately, has a lot to answer for because social media could help to get us all getting on a whole lot better, but they are driven by a free market society, which means that if they shock you and if they highlight conflict, then you're going to grumble and complain and go, oh, and you're more likely to read it. And that's a strange thing inside the psyche of each of us. It certainly is. Okay. Thanks to the robust scientific findings of the mere exposure effect, exposure will lead to acceptance. So that's it for today. So much to think about and lots of new frontiers. Next episode, we're going to look at different brain processes. Until then, if you like this material, subscribe to our email list in the description below for more. Catch you next time.